I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? Well, howdy there, partners. This is the Wild Wild West with Death by DVD. I am your host, Cowboy Hank, the world's greatest. (laughs) And welcome to the first episode of an all-new monthly series from Death by DVD. All about the incredibly fast Western genre. Now, I know the words Western make most people cringe and grimace. I don't like Westerns. I don't like those type of movies. They're boring. I know. I've heard it all before. In fact, everyone I've mentioned this series to save for one Welshman has gone, Why? Why do you want to do that? I have my reasons. My reasons in which I'll tell you now. Because there's several of them. And none of them are more important than the other. But alas, they are reasons. For one, there's not a lot of variety on this show. We do the same thing over and over and over again, and we have for 12 years. And there's nothing wrong with that. We have an audience for it, and our audience enjoys it very much. But there's so much more out there. And with that being said, there's so much more out there, but we don't really have to leave the constraints of our home, so to speak. The comfort in which we have created in the last 12 years with what we talk about and what is on this show. We don't have to run away from it and worry about, ah, We're just going to talk about westerns. (laughs) Yes and no. We are going to talk about westerns. But like I said, it's an incredibly vast genre. And it goes everywhere. There are westerns of all shape and sizes. There are horror westerns. There are sci-fi westerns. There are the traditional ones that most people moan and groan over. There are neo-westerns. There are all sorts of genres and subgenres. And we're going to cover as many as we can until this show ends or I die. But over the years, only dealing and discussing in very niche genres. It's not that I've grown tired of it. I just feel that there's so much more for this program to offer and for us to talk about. And not just in the sense of talking about movies, but film history and exploitation history. Because I personally don't think there's any genre more attached to B-pictures than Westerns. Horror, sci-fi, sure. Our generation, our, our era knows that. We're more familiar with that term being applied to people like H.G. Lewis, Andy Milligan, Al Adamson, Roger Corman. But before that, the king of the B-picture was the Western. And we'll get into all of that in just a little bit, because that itself is going to be a core part of this very first episode. Sure, we're going to talk about a movie, as always, like every episode of Death by DVD, but there's a few other things we're going to talk about also. So back to the reasons. I don't like a lot of stuff that I still deal with every day of my life. That's not an excuse. There's so many people out there that want to call themselves, let's see, let's be careful here, film aficionados? Yeah, let's stick with that term. That won't watch westerns. And you ask these people why, and you get the same thing. I I just don't like them. How do you know? I know a lot of people have this image of old-timers with their pants pulled way up over their bellies sitting in a recliner watching westerns, but there is so much more to the genre than that. And like I already mentioned, it goes everywhere. There is a Western for everything. I'd like to, at least for some of the people out there that are stubborn enough to just not sit down and watch a Western, maybe at least listen to this. 
have some different uh, takes on things, uh, maybe you'd garner a different appreciation for it. I don't think I'm asking too much here. And trust me, we'll get into some of the really well-known things. Sergio Leone, the Dollar Trilogy. I don't see why we can't talk about Tombstone. We'll, we'll be mentioning it a little bit later. Bone Tomahawk. Maybe we'll finally even do a Quentin Tarantino movie. The trail is an unknown one. We're going into uncharted territory. And I hope you take this venture with me once a month, maybe, or so. This will be like the video nasties. It should be once a month, but sometimes maybe we'll end up going three or four months without one. I can't foresee scheduling. All I can do is record, create, and hope at least one person out there listen to the end of the episode and might watch the movie that we're going to talk about. So there's a bunch more reasons, but there'll be a bunch more episodes in which maybe we can discuss more of those reasons. Because after all, this is supposed to be the very first episode in a new series, so it should be lively and exciting and grand. We don't need to spend the first 20 minutes dealing in semantics. Get jiggy with the wild, wild west. Actually, you know what? I think that's two different Will Smith songs. I think one is, is the wild, wild west theme, and then one's getting jiggy with it. Getting jiggy with the wild, wild. It sounds natural, though. It sounds right. I'm going to stick with it. Getting jiggy with the wild, wild west. That's what I intend to do with you fine lot of people out there in Radioland. Beginning things is always really the worst, because there's so much on my mind, there are so many subjects and topics that I, I want to get into, and, you know, oh, you gotta cover this, you gotta make sure you talk about that. And I've repeated myself several times saying, this will be an ongoing series once a month, maybe, here and thereabouts. And I said I was done with the points, but let's make one more. Something that's very important to me with this show is not just blathering on and doing this, but I learn a lot while doing it, and I have said it a bajillion times, but movies, film, is my favorite format of art. And I love learning about it, I love teaching people about it, I love sharing it. And I've always had a passion for westerns, my father growing up has always been a big western fan. I have memories early on, I watched horror movies with my mom, and then I watched John Ford movies with my dad. And of course growing up I, I, I lost a lot of interest in that, and I just like so many people that I was discussing at the very beginning of this show, eh, I just don't like westerns. They're boring. They don't do anything for me. And over time, I started gradually getting back into things because I, I, you forget, I guess, how real film is. You get stuck in your own generation and you watch movies from your own generation consistently or movies at least made in the time period that you have been alive and you get very used to the culture. You get very used to what you deem to be advanced society and you go back and you watch a movie from the 30s and the 40s and sometimes it's really shocking and astounding to see how coherent and how much of that movie could apply to what's happening right now in time that really time is a flat circle and all things are the same or all things that happened will happen again but we ourselves are not so different from our forefathers and the generations before us. That's something that I find really enchanting when you go back, especially to the 1930s, and you watch these movies, especially character-driven stories like the one that we're going to discuss on this episode in just a little while. These people are us. We're them. Time really hasn't changed that much. And I just find it also fascinating, not just film itself, but history. So what I hope to at least offer to myself and our faithful audience that tunes into this program is... Yes, I guess an educational experience. I want to talk about film. I want to learn about film. I want to share it excitedly with everyone that tunes in. And I, of course, want to try and make it fun. I don't want it to be boring blathering on. In 1932, this happened, and then the pony... No, I would at least like to offer something a little bit 
deeper than that. And I know a great portion of our audience truly loves film history and really gets excited when we get deep into things. And not every episode I can offer a scene-by-scene synopsis of what's going on. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. But what I can really aim to do is try and make it a fun learning experience. Remember that show Arthur? I want this to be the motherfucking Arthur of Western shows. But I'm pretty sure they never said motherfucking at all in that show. So I'm already off to a bad start. Arthur, where, why was... <laughs> Talking about Western movies, let's make an Arthur reference. Thousands and thousands of Western TV shows and nothing popped into mind. <sighs> Arthur, though, man, that was a good one. I personally learned a lot from it. Okay. Now I think for at least this episode, I'm done discussing the points of why I'm doing this. Like, I need to justify it. <laughs> you could just turn this off, listen to another episode, or find a more entertaining podcast that decided not to do a monthly Western segment. It's all up to you. Until I'm in your house. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. What do you mean you're where? Right now. At your house. But that might sound like a threat. And it may be. So keep listening. Or don't. It's up to you. So am I going to do a horrifying vampire western? No. Am I going to do an out-of-this-world space western where our good bad guy hero ends up banging a green alien? Hell no, we already did six episodes on Star Trek. Done with that. Is it going to be one of them there neo-westerns? One of them out-of-this-world things like that Dennis Hopper thing where everybody's living in an old abandoned western town and he slowly goes batshit fucking crazy? No. Oh. Hodorowski. Uh-uh. Ah, I've got you now, Hank. It's gonna be a Buschetti Western. No, my friend. You're wrong. Because despite saying that I wanted to make this fun and interesting, <laughs> I decided what we need to do is go back to 1939, and we need to talk about a movie called Stagecoach, directed by John Ford. Now, it's based on an original story by Ernest Haycox, but Dudley Nichols and John Ford really shaped the script and turned it into what the overall product would end up being. Now, why am I doing 1939 Stagecoach by John Forge? 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 Johnny Cadillac. John Ford. Well, there's some good historical purposes for it, but more importantly, earlier I said something around the effects of there is no genre that has better connection to the words B-movie than the Western, and that the Western is the king of the B-movie. Now, I'll tell you why I said that. B-movies are synonymous, yes, with horror and sci-fi, and it's mostly what I would say our audience and the mutant fam alike is enamored with, what most of us grew up with, why we love drive-in films. In fact, drive-in films is synonymous with B-movies. But prior to the explosion of nudie cuties, subversive films, and even horror films entering that category, the majority of B-pictures were westerns. Now, western films have existed since the dawn of film. As we progress with this series, of course, we'll talk more and more about some of these older movies. I mean, the one we're about to talk about is a fairly old film. But by the time this movie had been made, there were thousands, thousands upon thousands of westerns that already existed. And initially, this will also be a theme with the history of westerns, they were very, very popular pictures at first. And studios would have a great deal of money set aside to make these big-budget movies 
A movies with expensive stars and action sequences and props and sets and all the whole shebang, then they would have money set aside for the cheaper films, B movies, and later on, C, D, E, F, G, and the rest of the alphabet. B movies would just be cheaper films, cheaper stars, just things that were easier to get out, things to make money for the studios. And throughout the silent era, the director of this picture, John Ford, directed dozens, dozens and dozens of westerns, great amount of them with Harry Carey, all silent films. His first film, a short, dates back to 1917. Now, preparing for this very first episode, I watched some of these. I saw Bucking Broadway from 1917, and to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever seen a western that old before. And a theme and something we'll get into much deeper as we progress into this episode is how oddly relatable the characters are. And silent films are just so insanely different from what we even know to be movies now. Even when you go watch an old golden age Hollywood movie, a silent film is just so different. And of course you have very beautiful German expressionistic things like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which you can kind of sink into and it takes over your mind. But an early Western is, is a different task completely. But John Ford, and we'll get into more of this later, I know I keep saying that, is an exquisite man with an exquisite eye. Somebody who, interestingly enough, didn't really consider what he was doing an art form at all. He considered filmmaking nothing more than a job. In fact, he filmed the Battle of Midway, and when asked about it by the BBC in 1968, what was it like shooting the Battle of Midway? Was it extraordinary? He got really pissed off by it and said, there was absolutely nothing extraordinary about this. It was my job, it's what I was getting paid to do. And although the man said things like that, I think he loved working. I think his mission in life, he would say things like, making movies is just to pay the rent. But his entire life, all he did was work. So the man must have loved work, and thus by loving work, he had to have some form of passion for film, which I think is very visible in his work. In 1939, westerns were no longer palatable. They were no longer A pictures whatsoever. They weren't even really B pictures. Now, of course, World War II was underway, so a lot of war movies were coming out, there was a lot of bravado, and a lot of the film industry was sunk into the war effort. So there was no point at all making A westerns with A actors, because that money could have been easily used for other things, and the rise of nudie cuties and horror has slowly trickled into Hollywood. Throughout the late 1920s and 1930s, westerns became much more kid-oriented. A lot of traditional aspects and character archetypes that later become very famous in Western, Western films like the drunk doctor, the good bad guy, the white hat, the black, ta black hat, they all come from this era of more kid-friendly Westerns. In fact, this era possibly ruined the early part of John Wayne's career because he was making dozens of these Westerns. He was part of a trio called, I believe, the Three Mesquite Tears, and was making dime a dozen B-Western films nonstop. And people didn't want to cast or even see him in a lead character because he was known to be making these Tencent B-movies. Western movies in the 30s is what you went and dropped your kid off to watch at the cinema while you went and did something, and they would show a double or a triple feature with a cartoon of just really nonsense adventures. Gotta get from point A to point B, something's gonna happen in the middle, maybe they're gonna get attacked by somebody, and it was really no different than the same swashbuckler-style B-movies that were popular at the time. So the genre was just about dead, and most people that were appearing in B-movies, you could say, were washed up. And a great deal of actors just didn't translate and come forward from the silent era. Some people couldn't handle memorizing lines, and other people had ridiculously goofy voices. 
So a new breed of actor had to be born, and on top of that, the amount of stunts that were needed to make Western films really, really was hazardous, and not a lot of people were willing to do it, and this was way before there were unions and stuntmen were even given credit. In fact, we've mentioned this on Death by DVD before, but the first movie to really even feature the stunt performers being credited was Rollerball, all the way in the 70s, and that's because Jimmy Kahn saw these guys getting their ass beat every single day and thought it was ridiculous that they weren't getting credit. So even going into the 50s and 60s, when you're watching guys like Clue Gulliger, they're not getting credited for that. And they're doing most of the work. They're carrying the load here. Because most of the B-Westerns are very similar to what you see in Western TV shows. There's a lot of stunts, there's a lot of shooting, nobody really gets hurt because we're aiming for a kid-friendly audience, and it's rather mundane and boring. So John Ford comes along, and he decides in 1939, well, I, I kind of want to make an A-Western, and I don't really care what anyone has to say about it. And all the major studios kind of ridiculed him and refused to do it because he was really insistent on using a guy named John Wayne. And at this time period, 1939, the Duke was not a household name. As I just was explaining, he was a B-movie star. And that's what everyone knew him as. John Ford had thrown him some bits here and there, and he knew the guy was talented, he'd become acquainted with him, and he really thought that he would flourish in a role like this. And... John Ford is a guy that deserves his own episode of this show, and you know what? He very well might get one in the future. For now, I don't want to go into a deep backstory and history lesson on who the guy was, but he <laughs> he had a personality on him, to say the least. And when John Ford wanted to get something done, it certainly seems like he got it done. And that's just what happens here. He set forth to do something, and he got it done. And something that I find humorous about John Ford is his name is, is connected intimately with the Western genre, and he's almost constantly referred to as a Western director, something to which he found a bit dismay with and a bit of annoyance with. Despite these big-budget A pictures, he was more passionate about the B movies he made in his life. In fact, his favorite film that he made was something called Sunshine's Bright, which was a B picture. Or is a B picture, rather. You'd get this big budget, you'd make a big bang movie, and then you could sit down and you could relax, as he said, and shoot something that had some emotion. And emotion is very important when it comes to this whole thing we're talking about on this episode. But there'll be more about that later. Apparently, Stagecoach is seen, or rather viewed, by some critics, according to film historian Jim McKitsis, to lack the depth and complexities of later quote-unquote masterpieces. But in the defense of the A picture masquerading as a B picture, I disagree, and Mr. Kitsis is also on my side. I think this movie's style and tone helped shape the future of westerns, and not only that film in general to this very day. The Lighthouse, for example, has a good amount of Ford in it, among other things. The style of Akira Kurosawa, I think this movie would be very, very relevant to reference, which Kurosawa was influenced by Ford, Sergio Leone by Kurosawa, and Tarantino by Sergio Leone, directly going back to Ford. So his influence is deep. And I think this movie is one of many, many keys to that. Big budget westerns had completely fallen out of style, like I said. And Ford hadn't made a western in 13 years. And believe it or not, this makes his first western with sound. He would also shoot his first color picture that year on Technicolor. Drums along the Mohawk with Henry Fonda. And the ever-so-drab John Carradine, who also appears in the film we're going to discuss on this very episode. I would say 1939 was a very busy year for John Ford, but every year was a very busy year for John Ford. He usually made two to three pictures a year, and he didn't begin slowing down at that rate until the 1950s. 
So very much like our current era, no studios had interest in making a A-budget Western. No one cared about them. So John Ford went indie. That's right, in 1939 he found an independent producer, and they were just like everybody else. Really? John Wayne? Can't you get somebody like Gary Cooper? He's the strong silent type, you know? Gary Cooper. Now, that was an American. A strong, silent type. He did what he had to do. He faced down the Miller gang when, when none of those other assholes in town would lift a figure to help him. Now, did he complain? Did he say, oh, I come from this poor Texas Irish illiterate fucking background or whatever the fuck, so leave me the fuck out of it because my people got fucked over? If he was a medagon around nowadays, he'd, he'd be a member of some victim's group. The fundamentalist Christians, the abused cowboys, the gays, whatever the fuck. He was gay, Gary Cooper? No! Are you listening to me? But Ford wouldn't buckle. He wanted the Duke. So not having shot a Western since the silent era and insisting on using an unknown actor for a lead role in an anti-Western climate, it's very understandable to see why studios were hesitant to make this movie, to say the least. But like I said, when John Ford wanted a job done, he did just that. And if you thought I was gonna belt out, get her done... I'll burn in hell before I do that. Ron White's the only funny one out of that bunch, anyhow. But I digress. The film begins fairly vigorously with two riders approaching on horseback. And we see the stunning landscape that is Monument Valley. Stagecoach is the first time that John Ford shot at this location, but he would return many, many times throughout his career. Monument Valley is on the Arizona-Utah border, and there is a Navajo reservation there. And apparently the story I read is that someone had gone to, I, it, it was, I say somebody all blase, but it was a very, very famous producer at the time period, was in discussion with John Ford and had said, you know, the Navajo and people out there are starving to death, and I heard that they are just really willing to have people come out and shoot if they can make some money. They're not doing well. The, the government's really fucked them, and they don't know how to make ends meet. And John Ford was, I, I would say, a learned man. And despite being known for Westerns, which has connotations of being very, very macho, he was a first-generation Irish-American from Maine and had very humble upbringings on a farm. And later in life, as he went out to explore the world, started to experience the West, and did a little bit of cowboying. Cowboying? Cowboying. Sounds like I'm yodeling. Cowboying! Yodeling! And then, later got on to film, uh, I said this wasn't going to be a bio of John Ford. We'll do that at another date. But I guess that helps have a little bit of a grip of what we're doing here. But rightfully so, the plight of the Navajo affected him and he wanted to go out there and make a film, and the first opportunity he had to do that was Stagecoach in 1939. And apparently his relationship with the Navajo people was, was a very well-taken one, that he did a lot of justice by them. And I didn't fact-check this, I didn't go into much detail, because I had other things that I wanted to talk about. And as of note, just bringing this up, I did not fact-check it, but apparently he did very well by the Navajo people, which, if the story is true, that's nice. You don't hear much about successful white men, especially in the 1930s, doing something for anybody else, especially indigenous people. Apparently he was even given a name by the Navajo, and he ended up shooting so much at Monument Valley throughout his career that he learned how to speak the language somewhat acceptably, at least well enough to communicate with the Navajo. We're incredibly off-subject. Nice little segue, but let's get back to the old trail.
There's lots of horses and action and everything is moving. It's very spontaneous and hectic. Everything looks like it's real, which is a wonderful trick from the silent era to keep your eyes off perhaps less pleasing details, like budgets. Now, we're at a crossroad. We could go off into the movie, go scene by scene. I could rattle on about how great Andy Devine is as the stagecoach driver. And boy, let me tell you, he's one of the best things about this movie. Not just the comedic nature. Andy Devine actually reminds me a bit of Bill Paxton, that he was just able to completely change the air of a scene and adapt to it, even if it was an absolutely terrifying sequence and scene, somehow he managed to bring a level of humor and comedy to it that didn't overtake and ruin the scene, something that would add a pleasant nature. Didn't I just say I wasn't going to rattle on about Andy Devine? And I'm sure his name will come up many more times as we get deeper into this series and talk more about other Western films. You know, geez, probably a couple more John Ford films. Or John Wayne. I don't know. I know nothing. As an introduction to a new series, I think all of that would be very, very strenuous and, uh, boring. Especially since this movie has been running on television for about 50 years now, and it's widely accessible. I think for this series, it would be more beneficial to discuss the style of this movie and John Ford. Because these things later on as the series progresses will be constantly touched upon and referenced. And the movie itself? Well... People have to go somewhere in a stagecoach, and antics ensue. John Wayne and John Carradine have a battle of bravado. Geronimo attacks. It's a rootin' tootin' action-packed adventure. Though while mentioning John Carradine, and while discussing the influence of John Ford on modern film, I feel that Val Kilmer's appearance, his persona, his facial hair, down to the silver cup, everything that is his character, Doc Holliday, and George Cosmatos' tombstone, I feel all of that is Carradine in Stagecoach. Every last drop of the character. And I mean, certainly an homage on Val Kilmer's part, partially, but it's kind of like the homages Quentin Tarantino is accused of making. More or less just straight up stealing something. And this is neither here nor there, and I don't mean to bring that up in a whole big fucking debacle on Quentin Tarantino, but it's a very common thing that people talk about, so I felt it would easily allow you to understand the comment that I'm making because I'm making a bit of a snide comment here and this is definitely off track and a segue but Val Kilmer is given such credit for that character and how great it is oh man Doc Holliday and Tombstone that's the best that's the best man Val Kilmer did such a great job no all he did was pretend that he was John Carradine in Stagecoach you want to talk about a phenomenal performance in that movie Michael Bean Michael Bean is Johnny Ringo an incredibly layered character. Oh, such substance to that. Probably the most enjoyable thing about the movie is seeing the decline of the character, Johnny Ringo. We'll talk about Tombstone one day, I promise you. But hold that in your heart. Go back and watch Tombstone. Pay attention to Michael Bean. Man, he's great. Underappreciated. But that whole segue itself paints even a further picture of this movie. And I know I've brought it up, but I'm going to say it a few more times. Westerns were dead. This is a B-movie masquerading as an A movie, which is a theme that I think really throughout horror and exploitation history seems to be, interestingly enough, happening more and more now. The exploitation films of the past are now these major A movies. Look at Ari Aster's career, I was mentioning the, the lighthouse earlier, the old Eggman, Robert Eggers. These guys are making monumental art films that in 1970 would have been 
exploitation films. What's the difference? Exploitation has become art. Has it always been art? Exploitation's roots go back to the B picture. What, if anything else, is Stagecoach more than an exploitation picture? And that's a bold statement, and I'll tell you why in just a little while. Now, this movie serves very important to the history of John Wayne, but that story is less than exciting. Ford knew him, wanted him for the role, and then he got him for the role. Wayne's career took off, and that's the story. All right. Impact, influence, style, art, history. Let's focus on that instead of an in-depth look into the story and plot of Stagecoach. Howdy there, stranger. I've been on the trail longer than a rattlesnake's dick and would mighty appreciate if I could join your campfire. I got stories longer than Oliver Reed's bar tab. Just gather around and listen to one right now. Here's a story told round the campfire for generations. A story about a man named Keith David. Or, maybe a story about a man named David Keith. It's up to you to tell the difference. A mysterious lady gunslinger, Ellen, saunters into the town of Redemption looking for revenge. Her father was killed by the town's sadistic mayor, Harrod, who is in the midst of organizing a quick draw tournament. The lady enters, joining a cast of miscreants, outlaws, and bounty hunters for a brutal competition in which the loser dies. Among the competitors is Sergeant Cantrell, who plays the sergeant that eagerly competes for bounty. Is it Keith David? Or is it David Keith? Well, may the tumble and tumble we tumble on because it's Keith David. Thanks for playing another quick draw round of Keith David. Oh! David Keith. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now back to Hank, the Scourge of the West. The themes of this movie are interesting. At first glance, it's your average B-Western plot with a touch of revenge, but underneath that, 
Class warfare. Good old-fashioned class warfare. Note how the characters are introduced, and it's suddenly not so subtle. I don't think it was ever subtle. Modern film critics like to review old movies and act like things weren't the same way then as they are now, like I was discussing at the beginning of the show. It can be abrupt and somewhat shocking to realize that an 80-, 90-year-old movie, the people, the writers, the people creating the movie were showing the same plight of things that happened right now, and it's very strange to relate to characters or people that you know have been dead for 30, 40 years. But aside from that, time's a goddamn flat circle. Everything just keeps happening. That's how it is. History, alarmingly, is just the same thing happening over and over and over again and nobody doing anything about it. But, c'est la vie. What's important about this is what it does for the plot and the dynamic nature of the characters and how they work together and against each other. The United States was recovering from the Great Depression in 1939, and these characters, especially the more bourgeoisie ones, are really parody characters of the wealthy folks of the era. And they honestly aren't that much different today. In fact, nothing about the story or plot is different from today. Even the not-so-thinly-veiled insults to high society. The style is really what sets it apart, but I gotta be careful because if I spend any more time talking about things like class warfare, we all know that I will never get away from the subject. But it's something definitely of importance to bring up. But this is not supposed to be an essay on the nuances and deeper meanings of Stagecoach's script. Because an essay like that already exists. In a John Ford movie, the atmosphere is alive. Not one inch of the screen is wasted and something is always happening. From the busy western streets to the desolate but beautiful wild west. Everything is alive, to a surreal extent compared to other directors and film at the time period. And I don't want to go off on a list of names in comparison to other people because there was a lot of expressionistic things that were happening and coming out of Germany. There was art taking place all over the world. When it came to A, big budget studio movies, it's, again, no different than right now. You watch something like Transformers, there's not a lot of substance inside of it and a lot of daring, big-budget pictures really didn't have a great deal of substance. It was just story and plot, and then they made it happen, and that's about it. There wasn't a lot of thoughtfulness nor emotion put into things. Directors of A-budget films at the time offered a more stage place-like atmosphere and environment. Ford showed you the entire world, entire realities. He took you to the era, whatever that may be. Like, this movie was filmed in 1939, but the fashion and style that he creates this and what we see is shot and very reminiscent of how silent westerns were done. It brings forth and invokes that passion so the people of the time period who, ah, oh, westerns are burned out, who wants to see that? They got to sit down and watch something that not only invoked a spirit that they felt once before, but excited them and brought them back and what made them want to see more. That's art, baby. Whether John Ford called it work or not, Sometimes art is work. Sometimes work is art. It's very hard to see the difference, and not all artists are able to do that. I myself am very guilty of it. Almost constantly. Gwen Tarantino has noted before how beautiful films like The Last Picture Show are because they are shot and made to look exactly like the era that they take place in, meaning the film was shot similarly to the fashions of how movies would have been shot in the era that it takes place in. And that's what I think is intriguing in my whole point of discourse right now. now. He gets a lot of shit, and he's the butt of many jokes on this program, but I'll end up referencing Tarantino a great deal as we go throughout this series, because he, just like myself, is a very big fan of the Western genre. He's very passionate about it. And in fact, he's got a lot of things to say about John Ford. But in the case of this movie, it's the Wild West. 
That's the reality that John Ford is showing us. We're in a world of social prejudice, killers, judgment. A world of the past. But presented clearly enough, you can immediately relate to the world. In 1939's America, banks were public enemy number one. And that's not much different than right now, with dicks like Jeff Bezos worth trillions of dollars flying off to space as the whole entire world suffers from the fucking plague. And everybody claps, ah! He's going to space. Look, all the millionaires are going to space. Does no one think that they're just preparing to leave while we all rot and die? That all of these assholes are just largely trying to get the fuck off the world because, ah, the poor people, them and their goddamn plague, the poor people's making everybody sick. I don't want my money to get infected. That fucking kind of seems like what's going on. Man, we're off subject here. You mentioned class warfare one time and this is what happens. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. But like I was saying, you can relate to this world. Late 30s America, 1890s America. There's not a lot of difference. And it's not incidental that the destination everyone in this movie is heading to is called Lordsburg. People, in general, not just the characters, are in constant search of salvation. Not religiously, but salvation from woes, financial trouble, sickness, so on and so forth. The characters in the movie are doing just that. Some are on the run, others traveling with a point, but on the long run, it's traveling for the sake of salvation, something that makes this 1939 movie relatable in 2021. Ford shows us humanity and all of its positives and negatives. The characters are all traveling to salvation while representing humankind's struggle to do so all the while. Far out. All of these characters are contrasts of social castes, Tag Gallagher says in his essay, Dreaming of Genie, which is evident with the introduction of each character, many of which feature iconic trademark shots by Ford, like shooting outward from inside of something or vice versa, a noted trademark of Quentin Tarantino, I think which is deeply rooted to John Ford, despite his admittance to not being the most passionate fan of John Ford. Well... At least when it comes to the work of Peter Bogdanovich, he wrote an essay about the influence of John Ford's work on Peter Bogdanovich, which Peter Bogdanovich literally stalked John Ford when he was in his 20s. Everything that he claims he knows about filmmaking, he learned from John Ford, which I think is kind of humorous because Ford was not really passionate about what you would call exploitation or where the future of B-movies went. He wasn't very crazy about violence. He wasn't happy about sex films and things like that, which of course you could say is prudish, but the guy was born in 1894, so I'm sure things like George Romero was just beyond him. And again, something like that is humorous because George Romero was enamored with John Ford. In fact, his favorite film was The Quiet Man. George died listening to the soundtrack of The Quiet Man. To get onto a sad note here, talking about the death of the mighty George Romero. And that takes me back to something I said at the beginning of the show when I was talking about people just don't like westerns, and I think it's a shame. Because horror fans, exploitation fans especially, everyone you love, the reason they became directors is because of western movies. Bringing up fucking Tarantino again. That's why he became a director. John Carpenter's entire career, it's all he's ever wanted to do. Halloween is a Western. Assault on Precinct 13, it's a Western. He's just never been able to get A budget money. Shit, he's never been able to get B budget money to make a Western. Look at Ghost of Mars. Possibly why that movie was so... God, what do you want to say? So what? 
because it's so what, Hank? <laughs> what is Ghost of Mars? I don't know what I want to say about that movie. I don't want to say it's bad, but I'll never say it's good. What a pickle we've gotten ourselves into. Ghost of Mars. What the fuck? Where are we at Ghost of Mars? How do we get to Ghost of Mars? How do we get there? What the fuck? Um, it's a mess. It's a, it's a real mess, and, and everyone. Not everyone. I mean, I don't think Wes Craven explicitly was out there trying to make shoot 'em up cowboys or Western films, but guys like George Romero, guys like John Carpenter, uh, Quentin Tarantino, to say his name for the umpteenth time, Robert Eggers, a lot of their influences, a lot of where their studies and fascination with film came forward is guys like John Ford, John Huston. You move into the 60s and the neo-Western and the acid Western era. Uh, even a lot of the Japanese influence, Akira Kurosawa's work is really directly from John Ford. And a lot of his early films were just replicating Westerns in a samurai setting. The early history of film, I think, is Westerns are pivotal. I think if it wasn't for Westerns and directly going into the 1940s and 30s, the dead genre, Jean Ford, a great deal of things that we are passionate about and enjoy and love today wouldn't exist. And now back to the show. We've got a very rich cast of characters all in a quest for salvation and all of them smoothly flowing together as Ford uses the characters to push this story. We don't really know any of their backstories, but it doesn't really matter because of the social cast that they are cast in. <laughs> you can easily relate to someone, if not most, of all the characters as they go through this journey to some extent. Tag Gallagher also mentions in his essay, I Dream of Genie, how each scene almost feels like a movie itself, which is more than a compliment, but a fact and a testament to John Ford. Some of the shots are so expansive and vast, like triumphant shots of Monument Valley, you can't help but wonder if shots like that had ever been done before. Which is something else very apt mentioned by Mr. Gallagher. Well, I went milling crazy. No. Not that Gallagher. Stagecoach is an expressionistic look at life, layered over a look at the Wild West. It's richly nuanced in expressionism, really. From the desolate desert canyons and mountains to the dark streets of Lordsburg we see at the end of the movie. I feel the importance of this, especially as you go into the 50s, 60s, 70s, with westerns and B-movies in general, is the influence from Ford and his methods of storytelling. From the photography to the acting taught a lot of people, and in my opinion, that complete stories can be told simply through characters and through photography. Most certainly for the future of westerns, but as noted earlier, without films so richly nuanced and beautifully shot such as Stagecoach, the greatest works of Akira Kurosawa would not exist, and the influence of his films would have never reached Italy. No John Ford, no Stagecoach, no Buschetti Western. Feelings are one of the most important things when it comes to making a movie, and our wide array of characters produce nothing but feelings. We don't question our characters, but we empathize or despise them, regardless of which we feel. John Wayne's character Ringo, for example. Is that you, John Wayne? Is this me? Who said that? Who the fuck said that? Who's the slimy little communist shit twinkle toad cocksucker down here who just signed his own death warrant? We all know the typical machismo duke, 
But here he is a young, thoughtful, and naive character whose plight you sympathize with the most, in my opinion. He doesn't even realize everyone is so rude to the character Dallas because she's a sex worker. And if he does notice, he doesn't care because he, the character, the character Ringo, not John Wayne, judges people on how they act, not by what they do to pay the rent. And this is all visible on John Wayne as an actor, which is another testament to John Ford as a director fighting for John Wayne to be in this picture because he knew Wayne would be good. He knew he would be good for the show. It doesn't matter if you don't like westerns. Relating to emotion regardless is a key to movie making. Emotion in general, which Stagecoach doesn't lack any of. There is a cavalcade of western excitement within this movie. You got shootouts, there are crazy stunts, wild chases, there's drama and intense action. But I feel the overall message when we get to the end of this movie is a statement on intolerance and how living that way, judging others, it's no way to find salvation. Maybe it's all just a lesson on right or wrong. I mean, this movie offers nothing particularly new to the Western genre. It didn't really break ground. It offered the same visually of that from the silent era, but its ability to invoke emotion and the character depths given to us in such a short amount of time, that's what really sets it apart from the thousands and thousands of other Western pictures that existed at the same time period. All the characters you've seen before in other movies, the drunk doctor, the hooker with a heart of gold, the good bad guy. But with Stagecoach, all these archetypes are blended together in such a serious manner, their previously goofy incarnations now become trademarks of the genre, staples, as it progressively becomes more serious, more adult, more violent throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, and into the 1970s acid westerns. It's subversive in the sense that it rejects polite society and has you root for the underdogs. The most esteemed characters end up being the most scrupulous and vile, and it's vibrant and alive. No matter how old the movie is, I think Stagecoach is a very valuable movie if you want to learn about how to construct a story, and for the history. I mean, this picture, this is a rebirthing of a B-branded dead genre, and also rocketing John Wayne to being the biggest actor of all time for ages and ages. It also serves as a fairly good introduction to the Wild West with Death by DVD. I said at the beginning of the show that this could be considered an exploitation movie. So now having said all the things that I have just said, let's talk about why. At the base of this, at the soul of this movie, like I just said, it's subversive in the sense that it rejects polite society. The movie itself is exploiting the exploitations of people. The majority of our characters are trying to escape something and find the road of salvation, find something for a better tomorrow. It is an exploitation film, and then you can consider the fact that John Ford was exploiting B-Western movies under an A budget to get something done with the film itself starring a B-movie actor, exploiting the idea of Westerns and masking a story underneath a B-movie plot. And John Ford didn't care for more explicit films, and he, despite showing a great deal of violence in his films, I touched upon this way earlier, he was not a man that was into violence. His movies didn't focus on that, and I wouldn't say the violence was incidental, but for example, in this film, there's a shootout at the end with John Wayne, and he's given three bullets to kill three people. But you see these quick glimpses of it. It happens so fast, it's just, I hate to say, incidental. It's not the action, it's not the violence, it's not the point of the story, it's the emotion. I think John Wayne's Ringo the Kid is John Ford. He's a good bad guy. 
a rebel. And this movie more or less is an artistic and political statement by a guy who infamously felt making movies was just a way to pay the rent and that anyone could direct a movie if they just learned the talk. But like I said way earlier, maybe he just loved to work and by proxy loved film because it was his work. That makes sense, right? To speak on the volume of influence this movie has had, Orson Welles showed it 39 times on the set of Citizen Kane to emphasize composition, lighting, and downright achieving the perfect shot. Because there are some honest-to-God perfect shots in Stagecoach. John Ford said he didn't know where he got his eye for composition, but thankfully, it was his good eye. John Ford is truly a god of cinema. An American god, really. Not only with westerns, but his work in general largely is monumental with the shaping of how movies would become. How movies are made. I mean, it wasn't just solely John Ford in this era, but we aren't talking about anyone else on this episode. But believe it or not, this is going to bring us to the end. It's time to mosey on down the trail until next time. And I'm sure we will further get into John Ford's work. I seriously do evaluate this movie as an exploitation film, and I don't mean that in some loose sense. Oh, at the end of the show, he said it was an exploitation film because they talk about horror movies and weird cult films and drive-in stuff on this show, so he had to tie it together, right? No. I, I, I really do, in the sense and the core of what an exploitation film is doesn't mean it's a video nasty. doesn't mean that it's some ultra-violent, gory shit flick. It goes to the root of the word exploitation, and Stagecoach serves as a not-so-thinly-veiled stab at society of 1930s America, which also could equally work as a stab at 2021's America. In an interview in 1968 by the BBC, Ford was asked, If our forefathers could see us now, would they be proud? And after some debate, he eventually said, No, they would probably be ashamed of us. And I think that's really representative in a lot of what he shows us on screen with his movies, and this film itself... The characters are much more than non-rounded cowboys. John Wayne, of course, went on to do a lot of bad work. He did bad work beforehand. But it's downright insulting when you see film critics, and especially people in the horror world, that just won't even acknowledge or give respect to the tenacity, to the, the volume of work, and some of the brilliance in older performances, because I just don't like those movies. I mean, sure, you can sit around and watch Halloween all you want to, be my guest. Have fun with it. But there's so much more out there, and so many of the nuances, so many of the things that you enjoy and find passion with when it comes to your favorite films, whether it be John Carpenter, Lucio Fulci, George A. Romero, Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, and really any, any modern director, Martin Scorsese, Coppola, all these guys came from the school of Western. Even the most respected names in film history, Akira Kurosawa and the likes. It all came from Westerns. It all came from the B-movie Western. The origin of B-films in itself is Western movies. The origin of American cinema, I think, lies within Western movies. Well, this was our first time getting jiggy with the Wild Wild West. And to be honest, it's always very exhilarating but nerve-wracking premiering a new series for Death by DVD. We, like I said at the beginning of the show, have done the same stuff for so long. I know there's a core audience that trusts us, and it's always so enlightening to get feedback. I love hearing from old fans, from new fans... Recently on Twitter, we've been getting a lot of feedback on the Patty Hearst and Christine Chubbuck episodes, and I, I just hope 
from the bottom of my heart, and, and completely honestly, I just hope that there's something more to this than just listening to someone chatter. Opinions get so boring. Criticism becomes so boring after an extent. How much can you just hear people talk about what they like? And objectively, it doesn't matter how how positive the review is or how much the knowledge the person has and how many references they can make. It just becomes boring. The same thing over and over again, regardless, becomes boring every single time. So I hope... I can freshen things up a little bit, I guess, is what I'm trying to say here. But I'm also very interested in, in what I will hear from the audience, all of you out there in Radio Land. I know this is an uphill fight. I know most people have no interest in learning about Westerns. But I really hope that I can offer something differently here, even for those of you that have no interest in this. I really want to talk about exploitation. I want to talk about B-movies. I want to talk about film history. And on the Christmas episode, I brought up that there was going to be several new series that were going to be premiering 2021, Death by DVD, and only maybe two of them have come out so far. Two out of five? Six? I don't remember anymore. So for the rest of the year, we're really going to be working double time on getting those out. But I'm very happy to start with The Wild Wild West with Death by DVD, which is a working title. Maybe it'll be Death by DVD's Wild Wild West. I don't know. I'm the only one coming up with this shit. So in short, I learn, and then you learn. And soon, we get to talk about Franco Nero. Oh man, we're gonna talk so much about Franco Nero. And so many more famous exploitation names that you've grown to love. Like Klaus Kinski. But to wrap up this overly long statement, I've done this long enough that the real joy I've come to find is when I hear from people, you know, I, I, I hated that movie, but I listened to what you had to say about it, now I want to watch it again. Or, you know, I've never had interest whatsoever in seeing that film. You made me want to do it. I hate Andy Milligan. But no, I kind of want to watch the ghastly ones. I get off on that, I guess you could say. It makes me feel accomplished. And the overall point of Death by DVD is not just talking about movies. It's not just rattling off, I like the movie. I want you to enjoy them. I want you to see film as an art form, because so many people don't, and it's my favorite form of art. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to look deeper than just entertainment. There's much more to the world itself than entertainment. Maybe if you start looking at movies differently, you might see the world a little bit differently. Or you might value things a little bit differently. People just don't appreciate art anymore. Yet alone do they want to talk about it. And that is what I'm here to do. Talk about art. But this new series won't just be about the golden oldies. There's horror, sci-fi, Neo-Westerns, Acid-Westerns, Western musicals, Action-Westerns, Queer-Westerns, Drama-Westerns, Buschetti-Westerns, Mexican, French, German, Canadian, Spanish, all the country-Westerns. We got hot-Westerns, cold-Westerns, apple-pie-Westerns, Westerns, Westerns, Westerns! All of them. The trail is endless. Well, until next time, the bean pot's empty and I'm all out of tobacco. Happy trails, adios, and y'all come back now, here? Death by DVD.
live DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. And the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. The Death by DVD Sentinel Remix by Linus Fitness Center. Find them and follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Instagram today.